I want to begin this morning by reading, beginning in verse 33, we must read once again the crucifixion account in order to understand verses 51 to 54. So I'll begin reading God's word in Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him, that is Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. We pause one more time, O God, after the reading of your word, to acknowledge that we need your help this morning by your spirit. Once again, we ask, make us to know our Savior. In his name we ask, Jesus. Amen. Maybe you have thought 
a lot about the tearing of the veil of the temple, this great earthquake, and then many bodies of saints being raised from the grave at the death of Jesus. I haven't thought too much about that. And I think this morning is an opportunity for us to slow down a little bit and maybe reflect on why it is that the Holy Spirit includes these details in his presentation of Jesus of Nazareth as the King of Israel. These are three divine signs following the death of Christ. You could add a fourth if you wanted, and that would be just before the death of Christ. The darkness that fell upon the land between noon and three o'clock, which is around when Jesus died. These were extraordinary events. In and of themselves, they were extraordinary. Obviously, people getting out of graves and walking around, that's pretty extraordinary. But we also tend to forget the context that this is the week of Passover. Jerusalem is jam-packed with people. As Jesus is hanging on a cross, suffering between two thieves just outside the city wall on a busy thoroughfare, the entire time there are people going back and forth, back and forth. It's humiliating and meant to be so by the Romans. But the roads are full. The alleys are full. The temple precincts is full. Everything is is oriented towards celebrating the Passover. And Jewish men and women, their families have come not only from all of Judah, from all of that area, but from around the Roman Empire. They have, at great expense, traveled to be there and to worship God as best they knew by celebrating the the Passover, the feast of the Passover. So the city's full. Some estimates are up to a million or more in a relatively small area. So in light of that, think with me this morning, that, that changes how this is, takes place. If there's an earthquake, everybody's experiencing it. If there is a supernatural darkness that falls upon the land, everybody is experiencing it. This is not just some little event happening outside the walls. They maybe can't connect it, but at the same time that God's Son incarnate is hanging on the cross, God is testifying to the glory and the truth of His Son through these powerful events. And I want this morning to look at them with you. First, the veil of the sanctuary or the temple was torn. We learn of this, Matthew says in verse 51, that after Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, uh, and I hope that informs your view of Jesus on the cross. Again, he is not a victim. He is not some poor, expiring soul. He is wrongly accused. He is suffering terribly and unjustly. But he is winning on the cross. 
He is fighting on the cross. He is contending for his people on the cross. And he is victorious on the cross. You're hearing the lion roar on the cross when he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm done, like I would. I can't handle this anymore. He suffered down to the very drop, the last drop, the cup of wrath that you and I deserved. He drank it fully with intent, knowing what he was doing, putting the devil, putting death and hell under his heel. This is a triumph occurring here. And after that triumph and that victory shout, our king having accomplished our redemption, verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Wow. Now, this was not some flimsy little drape or curtain. The instructions for the veil that were in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, the instructions were provided by God to his people in Exodus chapter 26. God there said, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, in other words, woven into this this incredible tapestry were pictures of cherubim, the angels that attend God. Beautiful colors. It was to be hung on pillars of acacia overlaid with gold. This was a curtain that was about a hand's width thick. This is not a doily or a a flimsy little curtain on your window. This is a massive cloth crafted masterfully by hand, hanging in Herod's temple at that point, and doubtless it was glorious. That, That temple, Herod had not spared any expense. And though Herod was a a wicked man, interestingly, in the mercy of God, God honored that temple. Jesus went and called it his father's house. And so that curtain, that veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, this massive curtain going up high, thick, woven together with beautiful fine linen and works design of design on it. The veil was primarily theological. It wasn't for aesthetics or appearance. You couldn't see it. Except for the high priest who would go in and the priests who would tend to the lamps in the holy place, this was a veil, this was a curtain that, except for the high priest, virtually no one would see. And even, even those who happened, the very few men who were able to go into the holy place, they would only see that beautiful curtain by the, the candlelight that was in there. 
They weren't LEDs. It wasn't lit up. This is a gloriously beautiful place overlaid with gold, lit by these candles, and there's this beautifully woven veil that is primarily theological. How so? Everything in the tabernacle or the temple, ultimately, that was given by God as instructions to the people, everything in the design was meant to teach and instruct primarily about the holiness and the majesty of God and how God cannot dwell with sinners. Everything, as you approach the tabernacle, communicated that if you're a sinner, you cannot approach God, first of all, on your own. Second of all, even if you have a priest who's speaking up on your behalf, as you came through the tabernacle or you came into the temple courts, the first thing you would see would be an altar with a smoking carcass on it. Its blood had been slaughtered. A blood had been, it had been slaughtered. Its blood had been shed. And that dead animal was being burnt up as a burnt sin offering. In other words, sinners approaching God, you die. Not because God is unpredictable. Not because God has a bad day. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not because he's a angry God, but because he is who he is in his holiness and sin at its essence, your sin and my sin, is essentially a declaration, our sin, you are not God, you are not who you say you are, you are a liar. That's what our sin is. And because God is God, And because he is true, and because he cannot do anything but support and affirm what is true. When we sin against God, we meet up against the reality that is God, which is judgment and fire and condemnation and death. So the veil inside the temple in the holy place was theological. The, the priest, the high priest, could come in and offer up into the holy place, but only once a year could that priest, that high priest, enter into the holy of holies, the most holy place, where there was the ark of the covenant and the symbol of God's throne among his people, the very presence of God. Everything declared that access to God was severely restricted and that it was necessary for there to be a sacrifice, an atonement for sin. The veil, beautiful as it was, actually was a piece of safety equipment. You remember perhaps in the Old Testament law that the high priest, the For example, the garments of Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest, were to have bells around the hem. And we tend to think, oh, that's kind of nice. We like bells at Christmas time. You know, we put them on our doors and sleigh bells. You know, that's, 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 no, you are missing the point. 
and he was to have a rope around his ankle. And the reason for the bells and the rope was for the attending priests outside, if they were hearing the bells jingle, 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 as the high priest Aaron or whoever it happened to be at the time moving around, reverently fulfilling his duties inside the holy place and then in the holy of holies, if they heard the bells stop jingling for a little while, they knew that the man had died in the presence of holy God. And there was no way that they could get him out because if any one of them as sinners went in, they would die. So at least they had a rope that outside the holy place they could start pulling on and pulling the man out underneath the veil through the holy place and out into the temple. So the veil was theological and it was a piece of safety equipment protecting the high priest except for that one day from the majesty and the raging fire of the holiness of God. And it is after the death of Jesus in verse 50 when he cried out with a loud voice, verse 51, we are told at that very moment when our Lord and Savior laid down his life. Notice verse 50 says, yielded up his spirit. None of us yield up our spirit. Our spirit is taken. I don't have the power over when my last breath is going to be. You don't either. Jesus did. He determined that would be his last breath. He yielded up his spirit. And at that very time, the veil of the temple was torn. And this is miraculous. It was torn from top to bottom. I can't remember the exact height, but we're talking about something that is as high as this ceiling and much higher. So this didn't happen by anybody kind of getting up with a pair of scissors. And given it that's that thick, it's like a thickness of the hand, this incredible tapestry, there's no one who has the strength to tear this thing apart. This is a miracle. The only one who can tear the veil from top to bottom is God himself. Or perhaps one of his angels. What's the significance of this? Let's turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verse 11. Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross. He understood exactly what he was doing. And one of his roles on the cross was to be our high priest. And he was bringing in a blood sacrifice and atonement for sins, not into the holy place of Herod's temple, but into the very holy place of heaven itself. In verse 11 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, we learn, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
He passed through the veil, entered into the holy place. And with the offering of his blood now, there is no longer any need for that form of worship to atone for sins. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, not in Jerusalem. He was suffering outside the gate but into the very holy of holies in the presence of God, offering up his own blood, his own death, and experiencing in himself the full fury of the just wrath of God. Incredible. The veil of the sanctuary was torn Imagine the shock of those who were worshiping in the temple about that time. We don't know, but right around 3 o'clock is when a lot of the the height of the ritual about offering a Passover lamb would have been taking place, we learn. And the temple courts, the outer courts, the inner court, the priests, it's packed. And... A fabric that big, that thick, being torn, you hear it. And imagine the high priest, Caiaphas, going in and seeing that between him in the holy place and the holy of holies, there was nothing. The veil was torn, the tapestry was down, And he was exposed. Amazing. God dismantled that hypocritical worship. And he established with the death of Christ once and for all that the only way to God is by faith in his son, our high priest. The temple veil was torn. Secondly, this morning we learn as a divine sign at the death of Christ, the earth shook. The earth shook. We have very recently in Turkey uh, those terrible earthquakes. Uh, we, We see reports of when earthquakes happen around the world and they are absolutely devastating. Jerusalem is near a fault line. It just so happens but it is no accident that upon Jesus crying out with a loud voice that the veil of the temple was torn and verse 51 the earth shook the earth shook so much that rocks split apart now I have been in a very minor earthquake here in New Hampshire that I remember uh, and they really are minor some of you have been in some big ones other maybe places around the world but you suddenly understand how little and insignificant you are 
when the very earth underneath you is shaking and the structures that seem so strong and powerful, steel and rock, are swaying back and forth like they're made of Legos or something. God shook the earth at the death of Christ to the point that great large rocks cracked. And again, imagine the sound, this, this incredible sound, not only the earth shaking, but the sound and, and rocks falling and probably some structural damage to various buildings. And remember, the city is full of perhaps a million people. Everybody's suddenly being shaken Everybody is already a little bit amazed by how dark it is. This isn't normal. We don't know what's going on. It's noon. It's one o'clock. It's three o'clock in Jerusalem. It's pitch dark and all of a sudden the earth starts to shake. And you hear the sound of rocks cracking. It is disturbing, certainly. How do we understand this? There's at least two related aspects of the earth shaking. One is just the reality that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when God comes to his people like he did at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, that when God descended upon the mountain, it was with fire and smoke ascended and the whole mountain, Exodus 19:18, the whole mountain trembled violently. In other words, the earth itself gives way when in the presence of its creator. It's an it's a indication that God is here. It doesn't mean that every single earthquake that that is a occasion of the visitation of God, but it is not coincidental that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, the veil is torn, and at the very same time, you hear the tearing of the veil, and the entire earth is shaking. Incredible. Nahum chapter 1 verse 5 says in relation to God, to Yahweh, Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved. The earth is upheaved in his presence. The world and all its inhabitants in it. God was there at Golgotha. Not only hanging on the cross in the Son, God the Son incarnate. The Father is witness. The Spirit empowering the Son. And God was vindicating His Son, letting everybody know, this is my Son. And I think that that is especially demonstrated in Psalm 18, if you want to turn there with me for a moment. Psalm 18 is a rather lengthy psalm. We're just going to read a few verses from it. It is a messianic psalm. A psalm written by David in particular circumstances, but given by the Holy Spirit as prophetic prophecy, speaking of one day the experience of Jesus, the Christ. For example, in Psalm 18, the 
David says, verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Cords of shale surrounded me. This is, this is the experience of Christ, surrounded by death on every single side. Verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. How do you explain Gethsemane in his praying? He's not afraid. He's not a coward. He's not like David, but he nonetheless is surrounded by these enemies. And then verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 6, the Messiah cries out to God for help. And he says, he heard my voice out of his temple. My cry for help before him came into his ears. Was Jesus praying on the cross? Even my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a form of prayer. It's a form of faith. It's a form of acknowledging, Father, even though I am experiencing this, you are good. And he prays, into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ is communing and with and worshiping the Father, even as he's experiencing the forsakenness. It's this incredible act of worship by our Lord on the cross. He's praying to God. And God hears him. And how does he know and how do others know that God hears him? Verse 7, Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundation of the mountains were trembling and shaken because he was angry. What's he angry at? He's angry at sinners and how they're treating his Messiah. Wow. The earthquake is, at the very least, a fulfillment in part of Psalm 18 and God's hearing the prayer of his son, letting everybody know, this was my son, this is my son, I have heard his prayer. And look down at Psalm 18, verse 16. Yes, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Yes, Jesus died, but he did not go to purgatory. No, he did not go to hell in terms of suffering anything in hell. His last moment of suffering ever in himself was when he cried, it is finished, and breathed his last. Why? Because, verse 16 of Psalm 18, he, the Father, sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy and those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Verse 19, he brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He did delight in his son. And the earthquake is part of the father indicating that he is saving his son. He has received his son. And this earth is put on warning notice. The day of the Lord is coming. And one of the characteristics of the day of the Lord, for example, described in Haggai chapter 2, God says, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake the nations. Amazing. Jesus, our King, was victorious at the cross, and with his death, he secured the promise of God. I mean, the promise was given, but what I mean is, is it, God, 
gave a little foretaste of what is coming. The king is victorious. Now is the time to repent because this earth that's giving way and this darkness that is falling upon you is but a foretaste of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that is coming against all who do not confess my son for who he is, that is king. The veil was torn, the earth shook. Thirdly, Many saints were raised. That's extraordinary. I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach on this. I'm sure someone has. But I think we just tend to skip by verse 52 and 3. The tombs were open seems to be related to the earthquake, but distinct from the earthquake. And quickly, I want to note a little bit issue of timing here. We have questions. Well, if they were raised, did they not come out, verse 53, until after the resurrection? And uh, the commentaries are, you know, there's all kinds of talk about this. It seems that most helpful is that when Christ died, many Old Testament saints, we're not told exactly, but it's not a few. Do you see the many? I'm not making this up. Many. I I don't know that I'd really picked up on that before as much as I have this week. Verse 52, many bodies. I'm not talking like one here or two. There we're talking many bodies of saints were raised. It seems most likely in terms of timing upon Jesus crying, it is finished, yielding up his spirit, breathing his last. There is an earthquake. Some of the tombs are opened. And at that very moment, having conquered death and sin and hell, again as a foretaste of the victory that is coming, God vindicated his son. And at that moment, as an offering of first fruits, some of those who had believed in God and in the Christ were raised. And they did not perhaps enter the city until after Jesus' resurrection and appeared to many, but it was at the death of Christ that they were raised. Wow. That, that helps us because I think one of the misunderstandings maybe of the cross is that we recognize that the cross was terrible, and it was. And we rightly mourn and grieve over the reality of our sin displayed on the cross. And we think about the sufferings of our Lord as scourging and, and the abuse and, and crucified and, and his crown of thorns. And, and it, it is horrible and it's hard for us to take in. And, and it is sad and, and it's easy for us to join those who were there, as it were, witnessing from a distance But we need to remember that we know the whole story. And this is the moment when the king kicked death in the teeth and triumphed. So we're not down in the dumps from Friday until Sunday morning like the disciples. When we learn of the death of Jesus Christ, that's the moment of his victory. Hallelujah, what a savior. It's through his death that death is conquered. It's through his death that the devil is damned. It's through his death that our sins are atoned for. And it is so fitting and so appropriate 
that while it was necessary according to prophecy that he be in the grave for three days and rise on the third day, that it be proven that he really did die, he didn't swoon. How appropriate that when he died, having offered up his life as an atonement for the sins of his people, that the Father in love gave him a little gift of just the taste of the harvest that was to come. And many bodies of saints got out of the tomb. That's the power of the death of Christ. Amazing. His death dealt with the sins of his people. You remember all the way back at the beginning of Matthew. The angel said, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When he died on the cross, he saved his people from their sins. His death was a substitutionary atonement. The wages of sin is death. The wage, the penalty for sin was paid. There was no reason for these saints to be held in the grave any longer. And so it was perfectly just of God to give a little foretaste. This is both a gift, as it were, of joy to Christ, but it is also a warning again to a watching world. Darkness falls, the earth quakes, and bodies are raised. In other words, all that God has said that will come to pass about the day of the Lord and about the judgment and what he says through Daniel, that in the last days many will be raised to everlasting life and others unto everlasting judgment. You want to count on that, and as an absolute certainty, God provided a foreshadowing of that through raising the bodies of some at the death of Christ. Don't think of that as weird. Don't think of that as strange. Get your head around this. It's going to happen. And you're either going to be raised to everlasting life or to everlasting condemnation. And it is all because of the death of Jesus Christ. Death does not have the last word. Jesus does. And so what an awesome thing. And what an awesome thing it must have been to be after the Lord on the first day of the week, raised from the dead, and you're in Jerusalem, and, and suddenly you're there, and uh, you, you meet one of the saints. And I, we don't know who they were. We don't know exactly, but maybe Elisha. I, I only say that because we're in the evenings right now. We're in Second Kings, and we're studying Elisha. Tonight we're going to learn that Elisha dies. And it's interesting in God's timing that we're in the very passage tonight where Elisha dies, he's buried, and uh, there's this funny little story to us about some men who were uh, out and uh, their friend dies when some enemies, the Arameans or, or some foreign powers coming, and so they don't have time to bury their friend properly, so they just throw his body, literally throw his body in with Elisha's bones, and the guy gets up and starts walking. <laughs> it's in the text. I'm not making it up. What's that about? God will fulfill his word given through the prophets in the scriptures concerning the resurrection to come. You want to count on it. And if you don't like that, in other words, you don't want to be raised, tough. Because you're not sovereign. Jesus is. And his death has secured the resurrection 
of all men, some unto everlasting life, some unto everlasting judgment. You want to make sure it's everlasting life. So these great signs accompanied the death of Christ. Amazing. And they are, serve as a precursor to a future reality. Jerusalem itself will be claimed by Christ. That's very important to note and not incidental. Where am I getting that from? Do you notice that in verse uh, 53, coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, these, these saints entered into, and what's the description of the city? The wicked city. The wicked city that crucified Jesus and that God is done with. Uh-uh. The holy city. Hmm. It's not what I would have called it after what happened to Jesus there. And yes, the city would be destroyed in A.D. 70. But God will have this earth and God will have his city and it will be made holy according to his word because of his son. Well, we need to close. Uh, We've witnessed, we've examined rather the three signs that accompanied the death of Christ, but there's one confession that we want to pay attention and it's found in verse 54. We want to pay attention to the centurion. This is a battle-hardened soldier. He's over at least 100 men. He's experienced how many crucifixions He's so hardened, he's so tough that even men screaming after they're being pierced with nails doesn't even move him. This battle-hardened man who's witnessed untold crucifixions, what does it say? Verse 54, now the centurion and those who were with him, these soldiers, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. I bet not much scared that guy. But he became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. That was the point of those signs that men and women might come to that conclusion. And it seems very likely that for this pagan Gentile centurion, This was a confession of faith. This is what happens when God gets a hold of the hearts of sinful men and women and shows them the true nature of his son. And in closing, really, the entire message of the Gospel of Matthew can be summarized by two phrases that we've considered and we've heard or we've witnessed in the crucifixion of Christ. The first is in verse 37. God wants us to know that this placard nailed atop the head of Christ is actually the truth. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then out of the mouth of a pagan, Gentile, centurion, Roman soldier, truly, this is the Son of God. That's your Christology right there. 
That's what God wants us to understand. And it's not something merely that God wants us to understand so that we have our Christology right. You may believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God, and you may believe that the divine Son became a true man, and that is good. But you know our Christology, our view of who Jesus is, is right when we worship him, when we worship him as the Son of God and King of the Jews, King of kings and Lord of lords. And right now we're going to do that as we come to the table. Let's pray. Our worship seems so paltry and so silly almost in view of the glory of who you are, Lord Jesus. But we take heart that your Father and our Father seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. So as best we know now, as with our hearts, we, we want you to know, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We join the centurion in confessing that you are the Son of God. And that you are our high priest and the only way to God that you have offered up in yourself a sacrifice for our sins. How can we thank you? How can we bless you and praise you? We don't know, but we thank you that by your grace we can look forward to the resurrection to everlasting life. And that we will have day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia forever to try and express with our redeemed hearts and humanity how much we love you and how glorious you truly are. Be honored now as we come to your table, as we seek to remember your sacrifice, your death until you come. In your name we ask. Amen.